think is familiar to many of us, and in that notion there just may be some trouble. I think it is often the most beloved of tales that we get turned around a bit. It reminds me of a story. A rabbi and a friend were discussing theology, and the friend says to the rabbi, you're always talking about the greatness of Torah. Will you teach me some Torah? Will you teach me some scripture? And the rabbi says, look, Torah study, scripture study, isn't easy. I'm really not sure that you're ready for it. Oh, come on, give me a chance, says the friend. Okay, fine. Here's an example of studying scripture. Let's see how you do. Two men fall down a chimney. One comes out dirty, the other is clean. Who washes? Easy, the friend declares. The dirty one washes, and the clean one doesn't. Wrong, retorts the rabbi. The clean one looks at the dirty one and thinks that he is also dirty, and therefore washes. However, the dirty one looks at the clean one and thinking that he is also clean, doesn't wash. Oh, give me another chance, said the friend. Okay, fine, God bless you. Two men fall down a chimney. One comes out dirty, the other is clean. Who washes? Same question? Oh, that's easy. Well, the clean one looks at the dirty one and thinks that he is also dirty and therefore washes. However, the dirty one looks at the clean one and thinking that he is clean, doesn't wash. Wrong. I told you that you may not be ready to study scripture. The clean one looks in the mirror, sees that he's clean, and doesn't wash. The dirty one looks in the mirror, then goes to wash up. Well, not fair. You didn't tell me there was a mirror. Well, look, in scripture study, you have to take all possibilities into account. Ask me another question, please, requests the friend. Okay, for the last time. Two men fall down a chimney. One comes out dirty, the other is clean. Who washes? This time I've got it, the friend declares. If there is no mirror, then the clean one will look at the dirty one, assume that he is also dirty, and will wash, and vice versa. However, if there is a mirror, the clean one will look in the mirror and see no need to wash, and vice versa. Wrong again, said the rabbi. Tell me, how is it possible for two men to fall down a chimney and one comes out dirty while the other remains clean? So the Noah story is familiar, right? God tells Noah to build an ark for himself and his family and to bring into it every kind of animal. And God then causes the heavens to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And in our culture, this has become a children's adventure tale. Small wooden arcs are filled with a cargo of tiny carved pairs of interesting animals, giraffes, elephants, zebras, unicorns. We sing playful tunes in which floody, floody rhymes with muddy, muddy. Yet scripture relates a fearful epic of evil, punishment, and salvation. And I think by ignoring the most chilling parts of the story, we have trivialized it. It's just kind of what we do when we're uncomfortable. 
unjust suffering, unjust suffering, still evokes moral outrage and pain in most of us, I think. Have you seen the pictures from Aleppo? We wish and hope that the good are rewarded and we've become uncomfortable with the reverse. And we know that human evil is complex, sometimes as much as sickness as sin. And we're often unwilling to wrestle with human cruelty and wrongdoing, to expect justice against those who harm others, I think because that justice for us is often very difficult to define. Even God's justice is in a mighty flood. I think if we're honest, it makes us nervous. Contemplating the destruction of, entire, of an entire civilization is disturbing, and so it should be. And sometimes the beauty of Scripture is really that it makes us uncomfortable. It forces us to face what society allows us to avoid. Noah was a survivor. Saved from the deluge of destruction that engulfed his world, perhaps his greatest contribution is that he set out to rebuild that world. After the flood, he began the task of rebuilding a shattered world from scratch. He got busy and picked up the pieces, and slowly but surely, society was regenerated. So one of the takes on today may well be, who will bring a new generation into the world? Who will study scripture if not you? Who will keep Sabbath? Who will keep schools afloat? Who will rebuild the world, folks, if not us? I think one of the realities is that we are all Noah's. You see, at the end of the day, Noah did the job. He built the ark. He slept in all of the animals. He helped to save civilization and rebuild a shattered world. He did what had to be done. And one can still do whatever needs to be done in spite of our doubts. Because we all live with a bunch of unanswered questions. We rarely get paralyzed by doubts. Nobody that I know of has ever died from a question. It's how we behave that matters the most. And so God provided plans for an ark to float on the very same waters that brought death to others. And ever since, God has been keeping God's people safe through perilous waters. Moses and his little basket on the Nile River, the Israelites through the Red Sea and the Jordan River, Jesus through the waters of the Jordan in his own baptism, and ultimately all of us through the waters of our own births and baptisms. And that is why, in a very real way, the church is the Ark of the Covenant now, bobbing around on the world's dangerous seas. As you undoubtedly know from your own experience, one question that people ask about this story is, do you think it ever really happened? And a good answer, I believe, is it still happened. The storms of sin still threaten life. And most days, many people seem to miss those dangerous floodwaters.
rises so quickly that no one can miss it. I think the country had a brief experience around the nights of events of 9-11 that was like that. People returned to church. When the waters rise, people generally get interested in arcs of safety and reassurance. Even though folks mostly think that they can do without an ark, they somehow know where to find it when the waters get rough and deep. And it can be lonely in the ark sometimes. The prayers that we utter in church, the work that we try to do in Jesus' name, the words of gospel hope that we nurture and keep alive and proclaim, most of that seems to go unnoticed most of the time. And it is surely not something that people seem terribly grateful for most of the days. No, most of the time people are quite content to just drive by our churches, not actually come into them. But those of us who might claim to understand a bit of God's grief and the promise of God's grace know that this world sorely needs the ark of the church. And we need the church, not just for ourselves, but for the whole creation, for all of those creatures with whom God made God's remarkable covenant. It is interesting to me that so many of these basic tales involve water. Because do you know, water is something that we don't manufacture. All of the seas, the oceans, the freshwater lakes, the great glaciers, the ponds, the water that's in you and the water that's in me has all been here since the beginning of creation. So some of the water that makes you who you are undoubtedly once flowed in the Jordan River or was once parted by God as God's people marched through the sea. It's just one of the many ways that we are all one. Norman McLean wrote in that quote, Eventually all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. And on some of the rocks are timeless raindrops, and under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. Folks, that's just one way that two men fall down a chimney and one gets dirty.